Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Thursday, April the 8th, 2021. And this is one more of the ongoing series of LSAT Life podcasts. Why LSAT Life? Because for those who have to go, are interested in applying to law school, there is no life beyond LSAT while that <laughs> goes on. And I am fortunate once again to be joined in this conversation by two experienced LSAT tutors who are prominent in the Facebook.com groups, LSAT study group, Facebook group. And once again, introducing and welcoming back Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York. And we have a particularly interesting and relevant discussion today, which I will leave it to them to introduce. So welcome, Jake. Welcome, Keith. And what is it you want to talk about today? Thanks so much, John. Uh, I think on the docket today is reading comprehension. Uh, and among all of the things that uh, come to the fore when people come for consultations, there is an underlying frustration about reading comp. Um, that I think is born out of uh, a misunderstanding about what the task is, but fundamentally the, the, the conversation is, well, I read all the time, why can't I do this? Why is my score so bad? And um, if we leave uh, analysis off the table and we don't uh, apply the same rigor to the way that we approach reading comp, uh, sorry, the, the rigor with which we approach games and LR, if we don't apply that to reading comp, uh, we, we leave the ability to improve uh, way off to the side. Um, that, that same analytical focus can be applied here as well. And if we do, we can uncover things, uh, patterns and uh, structures that allow improvement in this section, but it does require a refocusing of the way we think about it. It's not simply being good at reading. No, it certainly is not that. And my impression of it always was, I mean, certainly from the point of view of a, a former LSAT teacher, I always found that the hardest, you know, to manage in sort of a responsible way, you know, certainly in groups. But isn't one way of looking at the difference that, first of all, um, I'm presuming that you would both accept that the skills involved in the reading comprehension are absolutely on a par, if not more complex than the rest of the test. Would you agree with that? For sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but you know what the difference is? In logical reasoning, which is often compared to, there's all this discussion of this question type and that question type, right? And it's as though the question types and logical reasoning provide cues, you know, to what the underlying skills are that are actually being tested. But I'd be interested in your view on this. If I were to say that one of the problems with the reading comp is that it does not presumptively in its formatting questions provide cues with respect to what's actually being tested, would that be a reasonable statement? Yeah, we, I, we agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, there, there are some cues, but the cues only, um, only relate to the questions themselves. They don't equate to the analysis of the passage. The analysis of the passage, you're required to generate that, that understanding yourself. 
Um, and, and, you know, if we think back to when we discussed LR, right, you know, my, my, my soapbox is about ignoring the minute differences between LR question types and understanding that the, the fundamental skills and the fundamental analysis is always the same. If that's the way you approach LR, then suddenly reading comp, the skills involved in analyzing reading comp passages become easier because that's already the thing that you're doing on LR. Yeah, Jake right. and I teach a framework for reading comp that it centers around applying the skills that you learn for LR to the RC passages. And so I think that's evidence that we agree with your assessment that this section is a, a compilation of skills from the other sections. Right. Now, I think I'm right. Am I remembering correctly that there was a discussion in the Facebook group, I think led by either one or both of you, uh, having to do with could one, to what extent could one use skills develop in logical reasoning for the reading comp? Am I, is my memory correct on that or something like that? Well, there was a discussion. I don't, I don't think we launched it, but, but I think Keith and I both dipped our oar in those waters. Mm -hmm. um, and, That's our and, whole, our whole model. So yeah, we were undoubtedly involved in that discussion. And I think an, another a similar one, uh, maybe in the same thread, I don't recall. And, and to be clear, uh, the, the methodology isn't under timed conditions in 35 minutes attempt to analyze the entirety of an, an RC passage as an LR passage and do all the same kinds of annotations. Oh my God, that's completely impossible. It would be, it would be crazy. Yeah. And so when, when we teach this method, the first thing we say is this is a review method. This is an analysis method after the fact. This is meant to build up the skill set so that in the moment under duress, you can draw on this, on the knowledge that you gain from previous analyses in order to see things that you would not normally see under time conditions otherwise. Right. Okay. Um, now, maybe I'd be interested, uh, you know, if you think this might be useful to, first of all, to reaffirm the point that the basic approach that it seems to me the two of you are using, I, I mean, I certainly agree with, is to figure out where the similarities are. In other words, emphasize the similarities and de-emphasize the differences among, you know, various things going on in the test, right? Yeah. Um, within that context, though, let's talk for a minute about the passage separately and then maybe the questions separately. Um, one of the problems that I mean, this is my personal view of it, and therefore it's nothing more than my personal view of it. But one of the problems that I've always found with a reading comp is that sometimes the passages can be extremely uninteresting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously it's a personal opinion as to who finds what uninteresting. Oh, of course. And, and who finds what complex and who finds what uh, difficult to penetrate. Um, and and I think that is true, but um, if you're doing things right, it's probably immaterial. Because if you're reading it to derive pleasure out of the reading, you're reading it for the content. And you shouldn't be reading it for the content. You should be reading it for the structure. Your goal is a deliverable at the end of your, you know, two, three, four, five minutes, depending on how quickly you read and how much time you've got on your section. But your goal at the end of reading is not to be able to 
demonstrate your knowledge of the subject. It's to be able to accurately and concisely uh, paraphrase the the purpose of the passage and the structure that underlies it. So what regardless of the topics then, right. and I seem matter. to recall they were fairly regular and they're shifting types, yep. but regardless of the topics, what you're looking for is some sense of what kind of structure they have to qualify as an LSAT reading comp passage, right? A hundred percent. And, and, and there are patterns just as there are patterns in LR. If you, if you want to think about the macro level, because I do think about the analysis of reading comp as LR, both on the macro and the micro level, both on passage wide and paragraph by paragraph. But you th if you think passage wide, loosely, you can think there is an issue at play there is some form of analysis or opinion being forwarded by the author. There is some form of evidence presented in order to justify said analysis. And there is a conclusion at the end of it. That will always be there. Sometimes it's a little harder to find one piece or the other, but if that's where you start, if that's the basic framework that you're looking for, you're going to get there. And then within that, you're going to see individual paragraphs that follow your standard LR structure. Some will be arguments that will have claims that are backed up by evidence and dictated by rules. Some will be merely informative, series of, uh, uh, series of information that are interrelated in some ways. Some paragraphs will be paradoxes, right? This is all of the common wisdom that used to be around in the world. However, I believe something different, or here's this other thing that conflicts with it. And then okay. that paradox must get resolved later on in the passage. So both on the big level and on the small level, you see the same structures that you see in LR. That's what we have to be reading for. What did they give me here? They gave me a paradox about some previous scientific understanding and some new evidence that's been presented by, you know, a recent study. And then that gets resolved by some person's claim that the following is true. And then they present me evidence to that fact. Okay, so that, that's what the passages are, are sort of about, the fundamentals of what they're trying to do. Keith, what are your thoughts on on how people should re how, how should people go through the process of absorbing and analyzing what they're presented with? In the passage, you mean? Mm -hmm. I, I sort of go a slightly different direction. I think that I encourage my students to become interested readers through active reading. I don't find any of the passages to be uninteresting, and I used to, and I don't think that the passages have changed. As you said, the topics are fairly predictable. What's changed is me. I have become open to learning about those subjects, and I appreciate those subjects more than I did in the past. And so I encourage my students to do the same and to do outside reading in the areas where they're weak and to develop a taste for these topics. Um, so one of the ways that I'm able to indulge the content, because Jake was talking about if you're too interested, it's because you're reading for content. W one of the ways that I'm able to indulge the content is by having a very sharp eye for structure. And there, again, one of the reasons why I didn't have a taste for some of these subjects is because I, I wasn't a good enough reader to appreciate the content. I didn't understand the structure of these passages well enough to read something about art or music, a topic where I was unfamiliar with the subject matter. 
and really grasp the, what they were getting at. And once I learned to understand the structure of the passages, then the whole thing became much more interesting to me. And I started to realize, oh, people have different opinions about Bach or Beethoven or this kind of dance. And if I become sort of interested in those opinions, not only can I get a better grasp on the passages, but I can step away from the LSAT and go learn more about those topics through that particular lens that, you know, those opinions that the passage offered me. So I kind of go like deep immersion into reading comp. I love it. You know, it's interesting to hear you, you know, you talk that way. Um, I mean, it sounds as though you're saying that your years and focus of being an LSAT tutor have made you a better reader. Yeah, without a doubt. Every, yeah. every prep test that I study teaches me substantive knowledge and reading skills. There isn't a single prep test I've taught with Jake where we haven't had several questions where we really had to think deeply about how the heck are we going to justify this to the students? It's bizarre. And we have to think about things in a new way. And there hasn't been a single prep test where there hasn't been a passage or LR stimulus that didn't teach me something new or introduce me to a new word or concept. Every, every day I look at this test, I learn something new. I, 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 you know, I want to affirm what Keith is saying here. I think he's right. I think you have to attack this from two sides, because one of the one of the benefits we have as LSAT tutors is that we have low stakes. It doesn't matter how many questions we get right or wrong, whether or not we're getting them right or wrong. And so, from the perspective of the LSAT taker, there's so much pressure that uh, it can sometimes get challenging when you get all tied up in whether or not you understand the content. That's why I encourage people to not care whether they understand it or not. But at the same time, Keith is absolutely right. If you want to become uh, more comfortable in your seat as you're doing these things, you need to supplement your work with substantive reading in those subject areas that will make you comfortable with with the things that you're reading about. And, you know, Keith and I both advocate um, reading outside of the LSAT. We know one of one of the struggles for the, the quote unquote full time LSAT studier is that they were trying to figure out how to spend six to eight hours a day studying for the LSAT. You can't do it six to eight hours a day in front of practice tests. You have to be able to do other things. And so one of the pivots I tell them is go get yourself three or four magazine subscriptions and have them be diverse. Dig into the things that you're not familiar with. If you have a humanities background, go get a subscription to Scientific American. Go get a subscription to the Smithsonian. Uh, if you have a science background, I want you to get the New Yorker. I want you to get the Atlantic. I want, right, I, I want you to supplement in ways that you're, you're uncomfortable so that your spare time isn't spent simply staring at practice tests only, that you can pepper in other substantive reading that expands your mind, that, that expands your skill set with reading, and makes these reading comp passages less uncomfortable when you're sitting there staring at them with the stakes so high, with your eyes on the quantitative metrics, worried about whether or not you're going to get a good score this time. The last thing you want to worry about is what does that particular word mean or how do I pronounce that thing? Oh, just a pause for a minute. I, I have no, I, I, I see no evidence whatsoever. And the reason I'm jumping in here is I see this come up from time to time in discussion that the LSAT is in any way dependent on vocabulary and that sort of thing. 
I, I mean, even if you don't understand a word, you're going to get it from the context. A hundred percent. But the yeah. problem is that when people see a word that they don't know, they worry that it matters. And it's the worry that gets in their way. Exactly. 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 Yeah. I mean, I think that it might be helpful for listeners to, you know, to affirm or reaffirm here that the fact that you don't understand a word in the passage yeah. is not relevant to how yeah. you're going to do. You know, there's no, no you'll, be, you'll be able to figure it out to the extent that you need to. It's their it's their mindset that matters, right? It's it's how do I feel about being uh, exposed to a thing that I don't understand? And the answer is it doesn't matter. They don't require you to know anything about the subject. They only require you to understand what's on the page. And the, the content based words don't matter. That's why I say we have to understand that it's not important for you to understand the science. You only have to understand <laughs> the argument that's being made about the science. Right. Difference. You need so, a lifestyle that makes you comfortable with discomfort. You know, oh, God, say that again. Say that again, Keith. You know, we're talking about outside readings, lifestyle, and I talk to my students a lot about removing the structure that they get from some of the major sources so that they can get more comfortable with the discomfort, with the lack yeah. of structure of the LSAT. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I used to say time after time, year after year, is that so much of LSAT preparation is to learn to get is to learn to get comfortable with what you know with the with the uncomfortable, you know. I mean that's a clear psychological and emotional hurdle. Now on the reading comprehension, you know, so so to some extent, right? You know, the the test designers, the LSAT test designers, need to have stuff in there that is going to make people uncomfortable. Otherwise, what's the point of having it? So. You know, looked at from another point of view, you know, these four passages, which are four fairly predictable different kinds of, or topically, topically different passages, are really selected. In other words, the diversity is really to ensure that everybody's uncomfortable to a reasonable extent, I think, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And they're not the only test to do this, right? The ACT does this as well. There's one, one fiction, one humanities, one soft science, one hard science. And they do the same thing here. Well, absolutely. I mean, if everybody's comfortable, what's the point of having the test, right? It measures something different. It's measuring, you know, long-term memory and knowledge if they can't hit you with something novel. So if they provide a wide variety of topics, then they're guaranteed to make everyone uncomfortable at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's clearly part of the test design. And I think it's actually important for LSAT test takers to understand that. You know, this is normal. I think that a lot of them uh, think, well, uh, you know, I don't I'm, I don't have familiarity with this or I don't know this word or I'm feeling, you know, uncomfortable. And this is no, this is the actual environment. I mean, actually, if you didn't feel these things, I think it might be evidence of an even greater problem. Yeah, it would it, it would be a lack of self-awareness. Right. If you if you're not understanding that you don't understand everything you read. You're not self-aware about what you're reading and, and not being honest with yourself about about your your level of comprehension. All right. LSAT's a good way to break through that that illusion. Sure. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Absolutely. The LSAT is an equal opportunity confidence destroyer. <laughs> right. And I think the sooner people realize that, I think the better off they are. But that's why, well, you know, my view of this, I think that more you share more than less 
is that, you know, you've got to kind of pay attention to the information you're given, understand it as well as you can, pay a lot of attention to what you're being asked to do with it. You know, and these are things that, you know, these are the obvious things, but yet people, people don't want to, uh, they don't want to do them. Now, a moment ago, uh, you know, introduced into our conversation was, I think, the phrase studying or prepping for six hours or something like that. Let me use that as an opportunity. I'd love to get your thoughts on what is healthy LSAT prep time-wise, given that we want to be productive. I mean, this is clearly, okay, let's start with this. Would you agree that quantity is no indicator of quality? 100%. For sure. Okay. So let's start with mistakes on the quantity. What are the the mistakes that, that you see people making, or at least what appear to be mistakes? Bear in mind that everybody's different. Uh, first mistake, which is the most obvious, are the people that are constantly doing timed sections and not analyzing that work. Yep, too many That's time the, tests, no, number one number mistake. One. Number one. I, 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 I forget where I was talking to, to somebody who said that they did three full-time tests over the course of two days. Oh, my God. Yeah, without review. I said, well, what, what was the What point? is it what they think they're accomplishing? I, I, have, I haven't the slightest. I don't know. I don't think they know what they're supposed to accomplish. So they figure that that volume is going to be a good idea. You know, our brains are expert systems and that works for some kinds of learning. You can learn the SAT like that. And, uh, you know, to be perfectly honest, some people can learn the LSAT like that, too. But it's a really small number of people. And the number of people who try to do it that way is far larger and try who try and fail, I should say. But I mean, you know, that our brains do work by pattern recognition and some people are really perceptive to those patterns and a few prep tests and they're good. I guess everybody hopes they're that person, but I tell most people, call me in a month and once you figure out you're not that person, then we can start engaging more productively. (laughs) And and, and I hope for everybody that they are. It certainly makes things easier if your brain, brain is wired that way. But you likely know that about yourself already. You likely found that out about yourself when you were 12 or 13 years old and that kind of learning became apparent to you and you, you discovered, hey, I can do this sort of thing and do it expertly. But if you know that you're not that kind of person, it's not magically going to happen on the LSAT. That's the last place it'll happen. Well, it seems to me that that's only part of it. Are you or are you not that kind of person? seems to me that one's perception of oneself you know, weighs very heavily here as well. Um, and one of the areas that, that I see, a lot, that I have seen this over the years, and I certainly see uh, suggestions of this in the group discussion is, you know, that people worry about, uh, am I doing it the right way? Or, you know, even if I got it right, you know, this sort of stuff. I mean, I would think that they should be very happy if they get it right. Wouldn't you think they should always be happy? I mean, it's 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 always a good idea to put the right answer. Sure, though you know, I I, I no, yes, of, of course. Though I had a discussion yesterday with somebody who's brand new to the test, took a diagnostic, has been doing a couple of video courses, and I said, "Look, you need to stop worrying about whether you're getting right answers." To circle this back to reading comp. The problem that a lot of people have with reading comp is they figure if I just do enough passages and then I read somebody's explanation about why questions are right, I'm going to get better at this thing. You have to spend five times at least five times the amount of time you do on time sections, 
on doing review and analysis, on doing untimed sections. At yeah, least blind five review. Times, maybe ten times. And especially with reading comp. People ignore the, the skills that you must build around analyzing passages. I encourage people, look, if you're a 12-minute-a-passage kind of person, let's say you're finishing three passages out of four on a time test, so normally you spend 12 minutes, I want you to spend half an hour to 45 minutes only breaking down the passage. Ignore the questions. I don't care about them. I only want you to understand the passage at its deepest, deepest levels. Structure everything. Annotate heavily. Find me every transitional word, every referential pronoun. Find me every way to analyze each paragraph. I want you to headline every paragraph and then weave together a 10-second story, right? A 20-word or less overall conclusion for the entirety of the thing. I want you to do all of these things. And then I want you to come back at me and I want you to explain to me what this thing is about. And then and only then, an hour into one passage, do you get to look at the questions again? Because guess what? Now the questions are going to be a whole lot easier. But that's because you you need to you need to understand what's actually happening in the passage. What about as an intermediate sort of tutoring step? So let's say you spend that time and you encourage them to break it down and understand it to the extent that they can, upside down, sideways, and diagonally. And then you were to say to them, now these are the skills that they're going to ask you questions about. Okay. I would invite you to make up five questions based on what you just told me. We do sure, a I, ton of that in our, in our third step, the strategy review for the most challenging questions that students get wrong. We frequently tell them that we want them to convert their wrong answers to right ones. And yeah. often that entails rewriting the question that they've misinterpreted the question in their selection of the answer. And so by reformatting the question, we can help them see what the question does and does not say and what how the answer choice they chose relates to the passage or doesn't relate to the passage so we do a lot of exercises involving making up text questions answers and even parts of the passage that don't exist in order to illustrate why particular answers are right or wrong yeah. usually wrong i suppose yeah, wrong. <laughs> well 80 percent yeah, 80% for sure. Yeah, 80%. But you know, if we're changing or adding something, it's because we're, well, I guess we do it with right answers too. We might say, well, sure, you know, this answer choice was the best, but here's what's uncomfortable about it. And here's why you're uncomfortable about it. And here's how we could have made it even better. That helps students to appreciate that the right answer isn't always the best thing, you know, the best model of in their, in their minds. Well, you know, on the answer choice, what always struck me about LSAT, and I think that this is, you know, if you were, you know, let's say they have a bunch of LSAT test designers in a room and they're having a design course 101, it would seem to me that one of the first rules they give is your job is to write the wrong answers in a way that makes them attractive and to write the correct answer in a way that makes it unattractive. 100%. Yeah. Every time. The, the right answer will do the thing that you want it to do, but it'll change the vocabulary. Uh, you know, okay, let me, okay, pause on that. Repeat that, sure. please. Sure. The right answer will do what you need it to do, but it will change the vocabulary from the stimulus in order to throw you off the scent. Can I hear vocabulary. that third time, please? Absolutely. 
the right answer will do the thing that you need it to do. It will serve the function of answering the question, but it will change the vocabulary to throw you off the scent. Yeah, you know what? That is absolutely correct. You know, the way I used to put it, slightly, you know, same idea, slightly different words was this, that you will agree with the right answer, but it will not be expressed in the language that you would use to construct it. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that is now, now what's really significant here. And I'd like to, you know, again, this is my own bias, you know, disclaimer, (laughs) but um, another way of looking at the last minute or so of this discussion is to understand that a very important and significant part of the reading test on the test is the ability to recognize that one cluster of words is sort of, you know, equivalent to another in meaning, right? Paraphrasing. Yeah. And, you know, this is, this is a vitally, a vitally important, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a skill so much as I would call it something you need to be very much aware of as you're going skill. through this stuff. I, yeah. I, I, I think I it's a I, skill. I think it's a skill too. I, I think it's something that you can be better at. I, I and you can get better at it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, you know, the first step to get better at it though is I think you got to be aware of it. And, yeah. you know, again, um, you know, my experience these days with this is sort of limited to, you know, the snippets of the conversations that I see going on in the group. But, you know, what I see consistently is a lack of attention to what I would call really dissecting what the answer choices are saying, right? Or what the questions are even asking. I mean, it's astounding to me how many times people think that they know what the question is before kind of taking a deep breath and saying, hey, what am I really being asked to do with this, number one? But a second thing that I find notably lacking is and how is what i'm being asked to do how does that uh uh, define the relationship between the right and wrong answers here sure you know you you've hit on one of the things that that was sort of the 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 kernel of the, the 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 process that we have been teaching which was the idea that you must paraphrase rephrase and prephrase everything on reading comp you read the you read the passages and you must paraphrase them for yourself there are two approaches one of them is boiling it down to its essential nature and the other one is rewording it in a way that's simpler and it's not because you don't understand the words but if you simply ate back the words that are on the page you don't know whether you've sufficiently analyzed them or not if you rephrase them and and the 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 urge that i give people is pretend you've got your eight-year-old niece or nephew in front of you and explain it to them not because you need it explained that way but in order to explain it to that person you must have processed it sufficiently oh yeah exactly exactly you can't explain something simply you know i just got off a call this morning with somebody on you know who this very difficult uh, legal issue, you know, that we're grappling with. And he said to me, all right, I'm going to go back to these people. But what I'd like you to do is take out your crayon and an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And I want you to, you know, I want you to give me this 25 pages of legalese with that crayon and eight and a half by 11. That's right. 
But that's only step one, because then you've got to go to the question stems. You've got to read them, and you've got to, you've got to rephrase those as well. And every question stem can get boiled down to a couple of things. What does the author say about it? Why does the author say something? Or how do they go about saying it? And think, every question stem should be rephrased that way. You know, I think paraphrasing is the most important skill on the entire exam because I, I learned to do it for reading comprehension. And then all of a sudden, what I found out was that I was doing it everywhere. I was paraphrasing logic games. I was paraphrasing LR. I was paraphrasing the question stems. I was paraphrasing the answer choices. Every single thing I read now becomes this multiplicity of ways of expressing it because I really was careful about learning that skill for reading comp. And we teach a game for that, a seven word summary game for blind review. It's not for time testing, but it involves forcing yourself to come up with the seven word headline for every single paragraph that you study on blind review. And there's no exceptions. Eight words won't cut it. I will sit there and stare at a paragraph for 10, 15 minutes sometimes because I have to shave one word off of my summary. And it's this a silly is the, game, but man, it made me good at paraphrasing. Yeah, but but the thing is that the game is so well rooted in in pedagogical theory, right? You, you go to the Harvard Graduate School of Education has this huge project on thinking routines for young kids, and it's designed for you know third to eighth graders. But the processes are all around getting kids to reflect on their own learning, and one of the number one things, one of the first things they ask kids to do is called headlining. Right. If you had to write a newspaper headline for what you learned today in class, what would that newspaper headline be? And, and I don't remember whether they assign a number of words, but the idea is seven words. If you have to headline it, right, G putting groups together is adding, right, or whatever it is. Right? The, the, the American Revolution was about taxation. I, you know, wh whatever the lesson of the day is, the lesson of the day in reading comp is you read this paragraph, give me seven words. And in order to do that, man, do you have to analyze it well. Do you think that given the um, character limitations with Twitter that perhaps learning to tweet more effectively might be good practice at this? Yeah, if you're gonna just tweet the main points of RC passages, I'd follow that page. <laughs> yeah, I had I had kids doing that for, for SATs. I had them giving me tweet testimonials it was great getting getting hashtagged was amazing that's um, interesting that's not yeah. a bad idea you know one twitter post for each paragraph that's all you get no that's too much for the that's whole passage much. yeah you get yeah, one, one twitter post for the whole passage for the whole passage you get 140 and and old twitter 140 characters none of this 280 stuff Is it 280? yeah they didn't they didn't they double it to 280 now oh my yeah. oh my god no wonder my thing's getting so sloppy yeah, 140 is too many. Well, no, it's characters. Okay. I was okay. thinking if I have seven words and there's typically four or five um, paragraphs, then you're talking what? about, you know, 20. 140 is real tight. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, but it forces you, you know, certainly forces you to be economical with, you know, thinking in language and stuff. And, you know, and, and I think what's important to, you know, I mean, I think this is probably obvious, but nevertheless, um, there, you know, there's a very, very strong relationship between language and thought, right? Words or ideas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, people need to concentrate on that. 
<laughs> thinking. <laughs> thinking. Uh, well, but that people don't want to do that, right? I mean, they want to know, well, if I see this word, uh, that means it's wrong. That means it's right. Usually it means it's when they think it's right, it's wrong. Because the job of LSAT, remember, is to attract you to answer choices that are wrong and keep you away from answer choices that are right because they're actually not your friend. Although if you stay at it long enough, not only will LSAT become your friend, but it will become a life changing experience. That's right. That's right. We, I, again, you know, all the days are, are melding together and all the people are melding together and I can't remember who I tell anything. Uh, but life uh, is nothing more than an endless series of LSAT questions. That's right. That's right. But but, you know, I, I had this discussion recently with a student who was saying that they're starting to see weaknesses in political discussions they're having with their family, but they're they're framing it w with regard to LR. Right. And that everything is a, is about, well, I, I see this flaw and you don't you know, what rule do you have that justifies that? That conclusion, you know, your evidence doesn't tie to the to the rules that are stated, and and she's starting to 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 concretize all of these things in in her real life, which is which was really amazing for her. And you know, I'm not one to, um, you know, run up the run up the banner and say like, you know, I, I believe the LSAT are, are represents skills that you will use every day in your in your legal education and in your life as a lawyer. I you know, I I'm not willing to to die on that hill necessarily but i'll do that I, one i i think there are very very tangible and useful things that you uncover about the way that you think by learning this test the right way right well i, mean, I think there's some truth in that way. i mean can you imagine a family of six sitting around for dinner or a family of seven and um one of them um probably the father um you know makes some um, statement about politics that uh, you know the five children find to be offensive and so let's imagine that somebody else at the table says uh, uh, all right you know we're all going to make up a statement then we're going to decide which of the following five statements coming from each of these five people seated around the table uh, most strongly undermines this ridiculous argument our father just made <laughs> Be a good but, exercise. but you know, I find it to be remarkably analogous to legal reasoning because when you read the legal opinion, the court is constrained to the arguments that were made, <laughs> and sometimes they have to kind of bend and say, "Well, if you had just said this, I mean, we'd have gone along with it." But oftentimes, they they hold they, there are holdings that you you can tell the court didn't want to reach, but they were just like that was the argument we were given. It sucked, <laughs> and we can't. We can't accept that crappy argument, no. <laughs> Actually, on that note, as we bring this to an end, I noticed that you're running a, sort of a pre-law introduction to law torts class. So maybe you could spend a minute and talk a little bit about that. That's actually what reminded me of this because uh, Jake and I were talking about the first case that we're going to discuss with the class. What's it going to be? It's a, a, a negligence case called Gasemia. And... Um, the whole issue in the case is that um, the the trial court counsel made a horrible argument. <laughs> so the whole thing turns on this like fact that the the appellate court is presented with a really bad argument and they don't like the outcome of the case, but they have to go with it because the the uh, you know the right argument wasn't made at the trial court. 
it wasn't preserved for appeal, basically. It's a fascinating case that discusses negligence and battery in the same decision. And I've had a lot of fun dissecting it, um, pre preparing for our first lecture. So and, and underscores the role of uh, getting good, competent counsel at the trial level, because if you don't have it there, you can forget about the appeal, that's for sure. Yeah. All right. This has been great. And uh, thank you very much. Um, sort of in bringing this to an end, though, where do people get a hold of you? Uh, you can find us uh, on Facebook. Obviously, you can send us messages. You can uh, get in contact with me at uh, nexusacademics.com, uh, Keith at Last, Bar Acad uh, Last Call Bar Academy, uh, which you can find on Facebook as well. Um, and to let people know, you know, coming up in the next month or two, uh, there will be a, a website dedicated to triple review, which is mine and Keith's uh, approach to LSAT. I mean, it's his approach to standardized test prep in general, but uh, approach to LSAT prep um, website is being developed as we speak. Uh, and hopefully there will be a soft launch soon. So take a look out for that. All right. Well, maybe at the point when you're ready for that, we can make a podcast around that. Yeah, you know, that, great. that sounds quite interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're going to have to call it for today, but this has been great. And I uh, thank you very much. And, you know, I tell you, after talking with you again today, I'm reminded that, you know, there there's not much difference between LSAT and life. And the longer you stay involved in LSAT, I guess the more enriching your life becomes. Yes. Yeah. It's a lot like poker. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. Thanks very much. We'll talk again. Thanks. See ya. <laughs>